Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I'm Trevor Maxwell. I'm a stage four colon cancer survivor, and I've got a message for other men. You don't have to go through this alone. What does it mean to man up to cancer? It means reaching out instead of isolating. It means having the courage to accept help along the way. To me, manning up isn't just about being tough. It's about knowing that we're stronger and smarter as a pack than we are as lone wolves. All right. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am very excited to have Jason Greenspan of Rockville, Maryland on the show today. Um, Kellen is um, in the cockpit today flying here at the Man Up to Cancer World Headquarters, also known as my family room. It is day number 10,427 of quarantine. and But I, I, I have shorts on. I'm bathed. I'm groomed. Like my, this is getting intimate. Man. I know, but my hygiene is what I'm saying is my hygiene is good today, Kellen. All right, so, cool. Yeah. Was it not the other times I was sitting? I mean, here? those those sweatpants I mean, need to be burned. Awesome. Yeah. There's no filter here, obviously. Jason Greenspan, welcome to the show, bud. Thanks so much. So Jason is a rock star advocate. He is a testicular cancer survivor. He's an event planner, and he has organized the largest simultaneous self-check for testicular cancer in the world, which made him a Guinness World Record holder. Congratulations. Thank you. And he is the co-founder of the social media campaign and day, National Ball Check Day, rising star advocate for testicular cancer, cancer in general. Psyched to have you here talking to us about it today. Thanks so much. So we have to start with your diagnosis story. I've heard this, I've heard a, a, a shortened version of this, but let's just dive right in there. Well, I got diagnosed at 40, at age 41, you know, which I thought was pretty young. And then I find out your story. I'm like, holy cow. So yeah, go for it. Yeah, mine was a little younger. So I was 18 when I was diagnosed. Uh, I was just in my uh, senior year of high school. It was right before my prom and graduation. And um, I was actually just on the couch watching TV and had an itch. And I had never even heard of testicular cancer before. I didn't know what it was. But something in my gut told me that something wasn't right. It's really hard to explain, but I'd never had that feeling before. And I went upstairs to my mom and told her, and we made a doctor's appointment. And right when he saw me after he did the testicular exam, basically said that, you know, I, I had testicular cancer, um, he didn't have to do any tests to determine that. But then after that, we did have a few tests just to confirm it. So that was definitely uh, very surreal. I'd never felt anything like that when he said that. I know like even my mom was stunned, especially just at such a young age. I had already planned on going to college and it's like, now what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, this bomb just hit your life at age 18. Like like you said, like what you, it was just before your prom and graduation, yeah. all this stuff, and, and boom, this thing explodes. Did you have any reference points for this? Like any, any people in your circle or family that had had testicular cancer or any type of cancer, really, that would give you any frame of reference? Um, no. So I had never even heard of the cancer before. My grandmother did have breast cancer when I was younger, but I didn't remember it because I was too young. So I only knew about it really from my mom talking about it. So that's, I guess, maybe where the cancer lied in the family. But hmm. no, I had no frame of reference um, at all. I don't think my mom really did either. It's weird because when you go in for to the pediatrician for a physical, I remember the one thing I absolutely dreadfully hated 
was going into that physical because I had to be naked in front of a, a total stranger. Sure. And, you know, at the time it was my entire childhood. And they don't tell you why they're doing that. And that that's the thing is I feel like maybe if I knew why, maybe I would look on my own uh, or at least, you know, my mom would know kind of thing. And um, we had no idea. Yeah, I mean, so let's talk about the mindset of an 18-year-old. I'm trying to remember that on my own. I know that as a senior in high school, I was so self-absorbed and my world was the only world. So if something like this had happened to me, it would have just been completely devastating. Well, also, it seems like dealing with testicular cancer at a time where people are not really mature enough to even talk about the fact that they have private parts in general to each other, that it seems like you can't even really share that with your friends. Like if you were, you know, a 40-year-old man dealing with it, it seems like you would be able to at least you deal with adults in the room with a maturity level that could handle the conversation. But your friends and peers were all talking about going to college, probably partying their butts off before they were getting ready. And you were dealing with literally a life changing event. Yeah. I didn't even actually tell my friends until I think after prom, at least Uh, maybe even after graduation Uh, just because I didn't want to startle them and I didn't want to think about it during prom because depending on when I would get my surgery would have depended on if I even went to prom. And we delayed my surgery so I could go to prom because that was something that I just couldn't miss. Yeah, and a cancer diagnosis, again, at any point is going to be, is going to come with its own issues. But at that age and with that diagnosis, it's just fraught with psychological weight I mean, so so when you did start sharing, what was the response by your friends and in your community? I mean, how did people react to that? So I remember the very first person I told was my best friend in high school. And we were actually, we went to a local shopping center and just, we were hanging out. And I sat him in the back of my car. We just both went in the back and I just kind of real talked with him and, and just told him what was going on. And um, you know, he was very worried and, and surprised, uh, to say the least, but, you know, glad that I was getting, that I was going to, you know, get treatment and get help. And so you mentioned the fact that, you know, at that time you were thinking about going to college and that you had that all lined up. Did you have to defer because of treatment? Yeah. So I deferred a year. So Shippensburg University is where I went to college um, in Pennsylvania. It was my number one school out of the ones I had picked. So I, I was really excited to go. And luckily I was able to get deferred for a year. So I ended up going to a community college for a short amount of time just to kind of take some classes so I really wouldn't get behind. But this was before I knew I was going to need chemo. So this was really just post-surgery is all this was. And I was just going to kind of stay home and take it easy. And actually about two weeks or so after I started at my community college is when I found out that it hadn't all gone away and that I was going to need chemo. So I ended up dropping out of my community college um, to do that. What do you remember of your emotions during that early period and what that was like for you? It, It was definitely surreal and a shock to say the least no one ever thinks that they're going to have cancer and just kind of saying those words to myself. I've Mm. heard of all these other people who had had cancer and it, it, it didn't seem right that I was in that sentence kind of thing. Sure. It was just, it was very weird, but, but I do remember, and I don't actually think I've told anybody this, maybe my parents, if any, 
is when I was at the community college, I, so I always think things happen for a reason. That's what I've always said my whole life. And when I was at the college and I had found out what had happened, I, so I wasn't doing that great in my studies at the time. And I think I was still kind of in high school mode. And it sounds very weird, but a little part of me was almost happy to drop out. Obviously not for those circumstances. Right. But, you know, just with you mentioning, you know, uh, remembering what was going through my mind at the time, that is one of those things. Obviously, Mm -hmm. I didn't want it to be cancer, but... It was it was a weird mindset. No, I can identify with that for sure. It's funny. It's funny you said that. I just had a memory from my diagnosis that's very similar. It's like one of those bizarre thoughts that you don't even want to admit. You know, like I was doing something professionally at the time that I just I wasn't too psyched about, and then I was like, well, I don't have to do that. I can do I can do something else now. I don't have to do that anymore. I was like, it was the weirdest thing. I wasn't thinking like, oh, this could kill me. It was thinking. <laughs> I get to not go to that horrible party. I have an out. (laughs) All of a sudden I have an out. So how did you get through on the emotional side? Like um, what was your support system? What were your tools for getting through that early period from a mental health perspective? Um, So my mom was my support. Uh, She took off three months worth of work to stay at home with me. And she drove me to chemo every day that I had to go at least. Basically just took care of me when I was at home and, you know, we laugh now, but at the time I definitely was not the nicest to her, but we think that's because she was basically the closest person to me and I had to lash out at someone. Yes. And that's kids in general, no matter what you're dealing with. I mean, kids, no matter how old you are as a kid, you can be, you know, Trevor and I's (laughs) ripe age, (laughs) but, and your parents, especially your mom, it's such a safe place for you to unleash anything. And if you're feeling, you know, boxed in, and you know, moms are moms take it. Well, right. And you're at this age where you're just, you're, you're just about to sort of assert your independence. Right, you think yeah. about college. And as a, as a man, you're kind of like, all right, I'm out in the world. And then all of a sudden to admit, man, I need your help. I need your care. I'm, I'm you're, you, you, she becomes a caregiver and you become a patient. Exactly. Both of which are roles that you're not comfortable with. And, and, and didn't choose. So I imagine there's this mix of like anger and resentment and nowhere to put it, (laughs) but also gratitude as well, sort of mixed in with that, right? Yeah. I I remember even when we would be at chemo or even at home and she would sit and watch TV with me and I would be so annoyed and want her to leave. And I would like (laughs) yell at her to leave. And then the second she left, I was like, where are you going? And it, oh, I mean, oh, from an outsider, yeah. it yeah. must have been so funny. I don't even, I feel like that is, that is so, I mean, I have small, younger children. And I feel like that is such a tale of a mom. Like no matter what your kid is going, they both, they both kick you and punch you away. And also are like, no, no, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah exactly. Don't, don't go. So, so tell us about your treatment then. So yeah, give us a little bit of a linear fashion. What were the steps that you went through? So I ended up getting uh, nine weeks of chemo. So I would go in, it was three different cycles. Each cycle was three weeks. So for the first week, I went in Monday through Friday for the whole day. And then for the next two weeks, I believe it was just on Tuesdays that I went in. Those last two weeks of each cycle was definitely the easiest for me. 
and what we were really looking forward to. And then at some point, then you finished treatment. And what did the doctor say to you at that point? Yeah, so I found that I was cancer-free. Um, actually, a, I believe it was two days before Thanksgiving of uh, that year, so of 2012. It, it was definitely a very happy Thanksgiving, to say the least. I then had to do follow-up for the next five years um, with x-rays and CAT scans and blood work. And so you head off to Shippensburg University. At that point, were you post-treatment at the, or, did, or were you at Shippensburg and you were still getting treatment? So I was finished right before Thanksgiving. So that spring semester, I went back to my community college for one semester just to kind of have some classes under my belt since I was starting Shippensburg a little late than I would have liked at least. And I went for fall of uh, 2013 for my first semester at Ship. And that's when you started getting into organizing and events and marketing, right? Tell us a little bit about how you got into that mm-hmm. world. Yeah, so actually just to backtrack even from there, so... Yeah, please. So we had, um, I think it was the derecho was was around that time. It was a really bad uh, snowstorm. And we had to uh, stay in a hotel, actually. So it was me, my mom, my stepdad, and our three dogs at the time. And we were all in (laughs) one hotel room. (laughs) And it was for, I think, one or two nights because we didn't have power in our house because of what was going on. And I remember there is when I decided that, and this was shortly after I was diagnosed. So I didn't even have treatment. I didn't have um, surgery, nothing. And Mm -hmm. that's when I wanted to raise awareness. So I actually started a fundraiser called Stamp Out Cancer Now. And that was really kind of the first push of starting awareness about testicular cancer and my story. And I had always collected squish pennies when I was little. And I'd always wanted my own. So I did the research and kind of figured out how to make them and who designs it and who's going to engrave it. Um, And it was a fun little project at the time. And I did that throughout my uh, cancer treatment as well, which was kind of something to get my mind off of it as well. You were, this was when you were 18 years old? Yes. It seems like there are a lot of through lines that I've heard through, you know, the stories from the men and the man up to cancer where feeling in control of some activism or some sharing and it has really helped a lot of them. So it sounds like you took yours to a high level where you're not just sharing your story, but you were actually starting actionable items, but in some ways helped you actually just gain power over the situation that you were in. And cope. Yeah. 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 No, that's so true. Um, Yeah. and, And seeing the design that I made go, I started, it was a social media campaign I did. It was called um, Around the Globe Challenge. So anyone who had ordered them, and I would encourage people to order them, they would post like a selfie uh, with it in front of a historical landmark or the Eiffel Tower or something like that. And then we would post it on Facebook and just to kind of get the word out. And it, it was a lot of fun. So even before your treatment, you're starting out your your work and impact as an activist and an advocate. Um, and then that's continued to this day. Give us some of the highlights along the way and, and talk about the origins of National Ball Check Day. Sure. Starting um, then in college, before I even attended, I looked up some clubs and one of the clubs was the Colleges Against Cancer Club, which organizes the Relay for Life at the university. So I'd never even been to a relay before. I mean, I knew what it was, but that was about it. And I emailed the president of the club at the time before I even had gotten there. And she was also a cancer survivor. So that was 
kind of really nice because that was really the first other cancer survivor besides anyone that we would have met in chemo in the treatment. Right. And probably your first real introduction to a younger peer. Exactly. Because I'm assuming a lot of the people you were seeing in your chemo treatments were you know, far older than you. Yeah, they were older than my parents. And most of them actually were um, my grandparents' age. So it was really nice connecting with her. And I got involved with the club almost instantly once I got to the university and just helped with fundraising events and planning the relay. And I really got to meet a lot of people, which was a lot of fun and I tried to share my story whenever I could. And also I had my fundraiser at the Relay that year and every year after that. So I kind of continued what I did when I was in you know, treatment. After that, um, I guess that would then lead into the world record attempt. It was gonna be my last year at SHIP and I really wanted to do something that everyone would remember. I was afraid that when I left the university, all the awareness I had done would also leave because I didn't know anyone else who had testicular cancer. So I really wanted to do something that was huge. And I kind of thought, what's bigger than a world record attempt? So why not try it? I was just saying, I love it. That's, I mean, right. (laughs) Yeah. I went on the Guinness website and searched. I was like, is there any uh, testicular cancer records that people have done? And there was one. It was the largest simultaneous self-check for testicular cancer. It was by um, a guy named Darren Couchman. He's in the UK. Doing a little research, I figured out, you know, more of who he was and contacted him on Facebook and I wanted to go for it. But what was most important to me before going for it, because I knew he was a survivor, was really getting his blessing. Right. So you weren't you weren't just like, all right, Darren, I'm coming for you. Taking you down, Darren. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I literally reached out and, and really wanted his blessing. And actually throughout the entire process of planning for it. I was in communications with him the entire time of if I was stuck on something, I would ask him, how did you do this? And obviously, since he had done it in 2010 and I had done it in 2017, um, the guidelines for the record had changed a little bit. And, you know, he didn't remember all of them, but he was able to really give me great advice and just really walk me through it. And I mean, he was 100% a mentor. Well, and especially if you're doing something like that, I'm assuming he did it for the same reason you were doing it, whereas advocacy and bringing awareness. And so, you know, being a seven year difference from 2010 to 2017, he was probably excited to have it be brought back into the zone of attention because it had been seven years. Yeah. And so he was actually the first person to ever do it. So he's the one who applied to even make it a record. So he told me that the reason he wanted to do it was so that people can break it to raise more awareness. So that was kind of his goal. When was the record setting? When did that happen? So that was on November 6th of 2017. Um, So that took place at my university. It was my last semester. So I graduated in December. So I really wanted to make sure that I was able to get it in before I graduated. Funny story that not a lot of people know. And I guess guess a fun fact you can call it. One, uh, so when I originally brought the um, event idea to my university, they actually declined the event um, and they didn't want to hold it. And I didn't tell that many people at the university um, at the time and, and really even now, only a few people know because they thought that, um, I guess their words, they thought it would like be a spectacle 
And right. they thought, you know, everyone was, I guess, going to like make fun of it and not take it seriously. And I think on their end, they were concerned about the liability with the students and the media and everything. So by the time that I had known that it was a 100% no on their end at the time, I was already, I'd already done so much research, so much planning. This was over the summer, that summer beforehand. And I, I mean, I was determined to do it. So I actually worked with one of my professors the following semester because I had scheduled a meeting with the um, uh, student engagement office at the university to kind of just do one final like hoorah meeting to kind of get my point across. Yeah. And between me and my professor, we, um, I ended up writing a 15 page event proposal with graphs and diagrams and everything I had done leading up and what would be in it for the university and what are things to be worried about, but how we're going to correct those issues. I mean, literally everything. That's beautiful. It was amazing. And I went in that morning and I mean, I felt like it was the biggest day of my life because I knew what was kind of on the line. And I knew that if we got it, it would be everything. And at the end of the meeting, he was convinced and he did say yes. Um, and then I ended up talking to the communications department, which helped really create like the name and the logo design and kind of really help get it to the students. But after that meeting, I remember calling my mom and I, you know, my grandmother had passed away a few years, a few years prior um, from breast cancer that metastasized to her bones. And I just remember saying, like, Grandma would be so proud. And it really taught me, just because someone says no, don't give up. Like, there's always something you can do to make it happen. Oh, man. I mean, goosebumps just hearing you tell that story. I mean, good for you. Talk about persistence. I mean, and it gets to the difficulty of tackling testicular cancer. It's like, you know, on the stigma meter, TC has its own special place in, the, in cancer land. It sounds like people in an authority are worried that people can't have, you know, adult conversations. And I know that testicular cancer advocates um, often use humor to introduce the subject, but we're talking about a very serious and real subject that needs to be addressed and pretending that it's not happening or pretending that testicular cancer is not out there in a thing. Um, so good for you for taking a stand, getting that through and doing that. That's a great story. I guess now's a great time for you to talk a little bit about testicular cancer in general. I mean, it's not an uncommon disease. No. So it's the most common type of cancer in males between the ages of 15 to 44. Um, and it's 99% curable if detected early. So it's really important that guys do monthly testicular self exams and are aware of their body and know their body. Because if they can catch it early, there's a really high chance that it's going to be treated. Can you explain, because I do think that as a female, you know, we get very, very clear instructions about how to do self-breast exams. Like, what are those guidelines for men for checking in, in yeah. particular? Yeah, so anytime I say this, I always say I'm not a doctor, you know, consult your doctor. Um, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but um, generally... I don't think people are coming to this podcast for real medical advice, but like... <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Anytime I do an interview, I always say that. <laughs> the best time to do it is either in the shower or just after a shower, just with, with the skin and the softness. Um, it's a lot easier to feel. But generally, you, you kind of take your, your thumb and forefinger and kind of feel between and, and pinch. And you're really looking for 
something hard. So for me, it felt like there was a rock inside. I believe it was the back side of my uh, left testicle. Um, it, it was literally hard as a rock. Uh, that's the best way I can describe it. And although it does differ for everybody, that's generally what you would do. You would kind of just roll it around. Um, I don't know how to describe it besides that. One of the things about doing regular exams is just comparison to right, how it to felt what's a regular, in the past, right? right? Yeah. So if you get a baseline of these are what my testicles feel like, I think there's a lot of guys who don't really even no, have that yeah. baseline. So once you set that baseline, then, you know, if three months later, yep, same, then same. And then you feel something that's different. But is there a, do you have a website or is there a website that you would point people to, to get, uh, I'm, I'm sure that there's instructions and information on this. We do have a video on the nationalballcheckday.com website, but even Perfect. if you wanted to visit uh, Sean Kimmerling Testicular Cancer Foundation, just as more of a foundation resource, they, they would mm -hmm. definitely be something I would recommend. So both of those sites, the National Ball Check Day site, and, and can you repeat that other one again? Yeah, the Sean Kimmerling Testicular Cancer Foundation. So you just had the first the first uh, annual, hopefully the first of many uh, National Ball Check Days. Um, I participated. I checked my balls. I did not, but yeah, I, I did let my husband know. <laughs> oh, see, yeah. So Kellen, sh Kellen shared with Jason, which is important. Um, so tell us about that day and, and sort of what the response has been to that. It's on the first Tuesday in April each year. So one of the reasons mm -hmm. we chose April is for Testicular Cancer Awareness Month. So this year it was on April 7th and next year it will be on April 6th. And really what we want is to encourage guys to do their monthly self-exams. So that's kind of where we want to talk about it really starts with National Ball Check Day, and the goal is to then continue it month after month. We're wanting people to share a selfie of themselves or um, our, like, I checked my ball signs that we have on our website um, and post to social media and use our hashtags National Ball Check Day and hashtag I checked my balls to see how many people it can reach. We had a lot of people partner with us for our ball check buddies, including you guys, which we're very thankful yeah, for. Yeah, awesome. Oh, thank you. A lot of other organizations and just people really wanting to help out. So it, it's really nice that one thing that was a goal of mine, especially, was to have the community come together. Because there, there's a lot of times with the testicular cancer community that each organization or each person sometimes kind of wants to do their own thing and just like own it. Right. Which is awesome. Right. But we also have to kind of come together for the common good as well because we're all doing the same thing at the end of the day. Totally. And that was one of the inspirations for Ball Check Buddies is really, you know, all these organizations who basically all have the same mission, let's combine them and let's do one effort and try and push this out and get it as big as possible. Yeah, we find that we find that same issue in the colorectal cancer space for sure is that there's so many individuals and organizations that do slightly overlapping things, sometimes totally overlapping things and then trying to get all of those voices in one place at one time and on the same, you know, mission is sometimes difficult, which is kind of strange for because we all have this great mission that we share, but that's really cool that you are kind of bringing the different advocacy groups and individuals together. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, you're doing for testicular cancer kind of, you know, in a way like, you know, Trevor is doing something where he's trying to create a community that is like the Venn diagram of all 
cancer males trying to be able to talk, right. you know, so that there's a singular place for that. And you're trying to kind of really try to figure out that singular place for access to information about testicular cancer. That's a great point. I will say like, you know, I followed your website and social media and everything, and you guys seriously are doing amazing things. I've been following it very closely. And it, it's something that I think the community, just even with men's health, is lacking. So I think yeah. having you guys doing what you're doing is really a benefit to really all guys with cancer or who have had cancer. Thank you for that. And, and, and I'm thankful that you're a part of it because I think I did not realize how this is going to sound so weird because men generally are not underserved, <laughs> but, <laughs> men, but men with cancer are because people aren't paying attention to, they're, they're not paying attention to gender. And, and although we do, there are some generalizations that, that we can back up with evidence around men and health. And I just feel like that's one area where I kind of was like, I'm going to get into advocacy around men with cancer and just put my voice out there as part of this. There must be like so many people doing this. And then you get out in this space and you realize there's not too many people advocating for men's needs in the cancer space. And that's why I'm so thankful to link up with people like you, because I feel like we're at the beginning of this great relationship where I can, you know, be a supporter of what you're doing and, and you can be a supporter of what I'm doing, you know you're young, like you're, you've got so much ahead of you to be an advocate. And like, I was feeling I have so much ahead of me to be an advocate. And then I'm like, Oh, <laughs> then you met him this, and yeah, you're that. like, Oh man, I'm so old. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm like these digital natives and these millennials. And um, when he was talking about the marketing work he's done, I'm like, Oh, right. He's yeah, young and he, social there, media yeah. was part of his, yeah. <laughs> right. Part of the, it was always part of the landscape, but um, right. So now I'm just, I'm thankful that we can connect and that we can um, amplify what, what we're all doing because I think what you're doing is just so admirable. Thank you. And, and, and I mean, generationally, it's kind of makes sense because I feel like your generation is, is all about speaking up for themselves. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, I do think that they're our future. I know. <laughs> like, <they're just> like, <laughs> like, I mean, I'm so proud. The men and women of the next generation that, you know, you're part of is doing such better work about understanding their own bodies in general, you know, just talk about the fact that he even was able to initially think before he even went through the treatment process, like, I need to make awareness about this. And it was a, it's something that I don't think generationally somebody 10, 20 years your senior would have necessarily wanted to share with the world. Very brave. Absolutely. Yeah. So <laughs> before you go back into your secret underground bunker where you come up with your next Guinness, you know, world record attempt. Is there anything that you want to, anything we haven't touched on that you want to put out there or any sort of last, last thoughts from you on this? You know, really encouraging guys to do their self-checks, be aware of their body, you know, only you know your body. And, you know, I just really appreciate you having me on and, you know, sharing my story and what I'm doing. And Oh, absolutely. And if people want to connect with you uh, online, see what you're doing, we already mentioned your site, nationalballcheckday.com. Are there any other sites or ways for people to connect with you online? So I'm more than happy to get out my email. It's just the letter J-H Greenspan. So J-H-G-R-E-E-N-S-P-A-N at gmail.com. I'd love to collaborate with anyone or give ideas or even if someone was diagnosed recently, I'm more than happy to just be someone to talk to about it. That's great, man. Super. Well, thanks so much. Of course. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. If you want to get behind our mission, you can connect with us, subscribe to our email list, and check out our other content at manuptocancer.com. 
And if you know a man struggling with the isolation that cancer can bring, let him know about us. The Wolfpack doors are always open.